Father, we just come this morning based upon the truth of that song. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And the truth that is within that statement, the expounded truth there, is that it is only through the person of Christ, the God-man, who went to a cross willingly, took our sins upon himself, willingly paid the penalty for those sins by absorbing in himself the wrath of the Father, and then rose again just like he said he would, defeating sin and death and hell so that we can only come to you through the cross of Jesus Christ for those here that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ we know that we are here this morning having come to the cross recognizing that through that we have open access that Jesus' sacrifice is absolutely, fully sufficient. So we can come this morning boldly, come right to the very throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we can find help in our time of need, knowing that we can cast our cares upon you because you care for us, knowing that in Christ, all of the promises of the Father are yes and amen. So here we are, God. No merit in ourselves do we bring, but we come only based upon the person of Christ. Boldly before you to say, God, we, we bring our worship. You're worthy of it. You deserve it. The worship of our lips, the worship of our lives, the worship of our finances, all of it. It's all about you. We want to give that to you this morning. And Lord, I also want to just thank you as we come. Thank you for this word right here that I'm holding in my hand. Oh, thank you for the word. Jesus is the living word and the written word is about the living word. And so I am asking you through the indwelling presence and power of your Holy Spirit that what you would do is that you would send forth your word in power. That it would be not just words on a page spoken, but it would be the very dynamic power of the divine God. And I know that that has nothing to do with any greatness in me. Matter of fact, it's the weak things of the world that you choose, the broken things that you fill with your power so that it's all about your glory. And so help me to become less Jesus Christ, to become more in the proclamation of the word today and all across this city. Every house of worship that is proclaiming the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Let it go out in power. There's really only one church in this city, the church of Christ, Jesus Christ, that bought and paid for the church with his blood. So your spirit, I'm asking to work in power here and elsewhere in this city today for the glory of Christ. God, we... Standing here humbly yet boldly, we have needs. You know what they are, even better than the one that carries the need. But I just know that some came in here heavy-hearted, downcast, in fear, in turmoil, not in peace, sadness, not in joy. And I'm asking that just the miracle would take place where you would manifest your presence right here in this room and 
manifest your power through the proclamation of your word and that in that exchange that you would give exactly what is needed to those that are here as you can so perfectly do. Trusting you for it in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask Jesse Glosser to come up here. Jesse Glosser plays a vital role at Cornerstone Church. He is, uh, amen to that. Yeah, he's uh, the member, actually, the chairman of our missions task force here at Cornerstone. And he is really the kind of a key piece uh, driving force behind this empowered conference that we've been talking to you about. And I just wanted Jesse to come up and and really be the one that just kind of gives some information there and gives an invitation for you to be a part of that. So what is the Empowered Conference, Yes. Yeah, hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, you can look inside your worship folder here. There's some information I'm going to tell you about. Um, the Empowered Conference is actually going to be this weekend, and it is an opportunity to hear from four ordinary men who have lived extraordinary lives through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And those men are? Those men are uh, Jim Capaldo, he is uh, currently the missions pastor at uh, Change Point Church. Um, he's actually served for many, many years in the Russian Republic of Tuva. Uh, he just packed his family up and moved over there, spent a couple years learning to speak Russian, uh, and left behind a uh, church plant movement. Uh, we're going to have Curtis Burnham. Curtis is, uh, uh, we've supported Curtis for a long time here at Cornerstone. He actually lives in Florida, and he regularly uh, engages in youth ministry in Central and South America. And he leads a youth mission trip to Europe every year. We've actually sent a couple of our own kids uh, on his trip in the past couple of years. Uh, Brian is taking a group this summer. Um, we support uh, Ron Cootie. He'll be speaking. Ron and his wife live in Turkey. And they are really engaged in underground church planting mm-hmm. there in, a, in the Muslim community. And uh, then we have our own Mark Bowman. Uh, Mark has... Uh, Served for many years in Cambodia, leading a uh, orphanage. Okay, so just we got a couple hundred people here. Let's say a couple hundred people come to the conference this coming weekend. What do you want them to take away from that? What's the foundational pieces of truth there you want them to grab? Yeah, really, there are two foundational truths, and really kind of fleshed out in the lives of these men, and really foundational to Scripture. And those two truths are: number one, you were created; I was created; all creation was created for the glory of God. Our lives, the purpose of our lives is to glorify the Lord. And actually, we are the most fulfilled in our lives when we bring glory to the Lord. And the uh, second truth is actually up here on the wall. It's the third point of our mission statement, and that is uh, sending the empowered. Did you know that you, if you uh, believe in Christ, you're you're, uh, uh, called to be a part of the Great Commission? Um, Acts 1.8 says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, I'll paraphrase here, to Anchorage, to Alaska, to America, and to the very ends of the earth. So whether the Holy Spirit calls you to ministry on the other side of the world or the other side of the backyard fence, the Great Commission is for you. So it's not, it's not an optional thing if I'm a believer? It's not an optional thing. Wow. You are conscripted. Did you know that? Did you know that? It's a part of the plan, right? It's part of the plan. You can answer for that one day, right? That's right. Start on. Okay. How about the details? Time, location? Okay. So it's <clears> going to be this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Friday night from 7 to 9, right here at the church. Saturday from 10 to 3. And Sunday morning at the 9.30 and the 11.30 service. This Friday, the doors open at 6.30. Uh, child care is provided for the entire conference. You come in at 6.30, drop the kids off. Uh, conference starts at 7. We have a dessert and coffee for you on Friday night. Saturday morning, uh, conference starts at 10, but you can come at 9, drop your kids off. We'll have a continental breakfast for you, so you can come hungry. Uh, we'll have a lunch as well. And then on Sunday, uh, we won't feed you, but we'll have a mission fair after the services. Uh, around here in the uh, sanctuary, at the back of the sanctuary, we'll have some tables set up with various missions that we support actually most of them will be manned with uh, representatives and so that's an opportunity for you to just kind of walk around look at the different missions that we support see if there's a way that you can get plugged in 
Okay, so now I'm a little concerned now. If you're, if you're providing the food and you're bringing people from the other side of the world, this is going to come with a major price tag to the people that attend, right? Actually, no. It's free. You can come wow. and uh, no charge. Wow, isn't that incredible? No charge. How do they sign up? How do you sign up? Well, we have two ways you can sign up. For those of you who are technically savvy, we have uh, a sign-up on our webpage, akcornerstone.org. Or if you prefer the old-fashioned pen and paper, we're going to actually have a table set up in the back hallway. Uh, Mercy Goeth will be uh, tending that table, and you can sign up there. Here after church today. That's right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Appreciate it, bud. Right on. <clears throat> Thanks, Mary. I needed a refresher there. Turn to Romans chapter 8, please. We're going to pick up in the 11th verse. We left off last week. And what I want to do as we jump into this incredible truth within this incredible chapter in this incredible verse, I just want to read not just verse 11 that we're going to cover today, but I want to look at the two verses as well that we looked at last Sunday because really there's a train of thought here um, that the sentence is almost or the idea is kind of incomplete without that. So let, we're just going to start by reading Romans 8, 10, 9, and 10 and then make a brief comment and then we'll jump in to this verse for the, this morning that we're going to unpack. So Romans chapter 9 of Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Here's what Paul wrote. And by the way, would you, just in honor to the Word of God, would you stand as we read these three verses? I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then verse 11 opens up with if, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Stop right there for a moment. Paul is not saying here in the opening word, the if word in verse 11, that Possibly some of the Roman Christians that he's writing this letter to have the Spirit of God dwelling in them and some do not. That's not what the if means. If you, that's why I wanted to read verses 9 and 10. Do you see the flow of thought here? He has just said in verses 9 and 10 and reiterated very powerfully this truth. Every believer has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Matter of fact, if you don't, you are not a Christian. That's exactly what he says. They're, they're synonymous. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you're a Christian. You're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And then he comes to verse 11 and says, and if that is true, or you could say it like this, and because of that fact, that what I am going to say to you now in verse 11 is guaranteed because of what I have just said to you in verses 9 and 10. That's what the if means. So now let's read verse 11 that we're going to cover today. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You may be seated. First of all, what I want to do is I want to give you, I just want to draw your attention to two key ideas that are included in this verse that really serve as a, a foundation for all of the truth that's here. That it would really be helpful for you to get it in your mind what those two key ideas are because they will give color and depth to what Paul is saying. So let me just state them very quickly. The first one is this, that the Spirit who indwells every Christian is the proof, is the 
guaranteed, unchangeable truth that your mortal body will be resurrected. Do you you see that in there? If the spirit that dwells in you says that twice, and then he makes the statement, that spirit will give life to your mortal body. And then secondly, here's the second truth. That the spirit will also give life. Do you see that word there? That he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and then those two words, will also. What is that referring to? He is saying that the promised resurrection of your mortal body is based upon whose resurrection? Jesus Christ's. So that he is saying that just like Paul is saying, just like the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit who dwelt in Jesus, gave life to Jesus' physical body in resurrection, he will also do the same thing for you. So that Paul is saying there that Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of the resurrection of every follower of Christ. So we have those two things there, that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that every true Christian will have their mortal bodies raised and then secondly, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee that your mortal body will be resurrected. Keep those two things in mind and we will give shape and color to those as we walk through this. So here's what I want to do now. I want to to give you the truth. I want to frame the truth that I'm going to explain to you this morning under three headings. And I share this uh, quite regularly. Even when I don't, it's still my basic outline every time I step up here. And it's this. I want to tell you from verse 11, the what, the so what, and the now what. The what is this. What did God say in this verse? By that I mean, we need to understand accurately what the context and the grammatical communication is teaching us. We got to correctly understand it first. That's what did God say? Then once we understand the what, what did God say? Then we are set up and ready to answer the so what. And here's the so what. What did God mean? Or you could say that another way. What did God say about what he said? So that there is an understanding of depth of meaning based upon, it's not just an arbitrary truth that doesn't have anything to do with our lives. It has a meaning that should be understood and embraced for us. And then the third question is the now what and the now what is this what must I do about what God has said and what he means about what he said so what so what and now what so we're going to begin with a what what did God say through the inspired divinely inspired pen of Paul when he wrote the 11th verse of the 8th chapter of the greatest letter ever written. Let me read the verse again. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. I'm going to give you two popular interpretations. One is not correct. My deep conviction and one is correct. I'm going to give you the incorrect one first. Some interpret this verse to mean this, that the life that is being promised here through the indwelling spirit in the Christian is this. It is a moral resurrection in this life of your mortal body. 
Meaning this, that while we live in this life, we are still living within a mortal body, a body that has the seed of sin in it. Sin still remains even if you're a believer. That's true. And because of that, it's a corrupted body. And that body is decaying. That body is weak. That body is susceptible to frailties and to illness and to sin and to wickedness. And what some say that Paul is communicating here is that the Holy Spirit of God in the midst of your mortal body so prone to failure and weakness that that spirit is going to give you a moral resurrection in this life. He's going to work in your life in such a way that he will enable you to live a moral life even though you carry around a mortal body. Now, let me at least say this. I don't want to, I don't want to be uh, really down or negative. I'm pretty sure that it, with as many people, 250 people or so in this room, some of you have heard that teaching. But let me, let me say this. Scripture clearly teaches that. Scripture clearly teaches that the work of the Spirit of God is to make you like the Son of God. That's the whole goal. What's God's plan for you? Be like Jesus. That's it. Be like Jesus. And what that means is, be like Jesus in desire. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Be like Jesus in mind. Love the Lord your God with all your soul and your mind. Be like Jesus in your actions. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. As you grow in that, as you grow more like Jesus Christ, what you're going to be doing then is you're going to be Looking more like him, talking more like him, walking more like him, thinking more like him, desiring the things that he desires. And the external reality of that is you're going to be more moral, right? I mean, that's just an obvious. Is Jesus more moral than you are? Yeah. You get more like him, you're going to be more moral. So clearly, that is a teaching of Scripture. But here's the question. Is that the teaching of Romans chapter 8, verse 11? And what I'm saying to you this morning is it is not the teaching of Romans 8 verse 11. Paul is saying something else. He's not talking about a moral resurrection in this life of the mortal body. What Paul is talking about here, I believe, deeply convinced, is he's talking about the resurrection of your physical mortal body on the final day when Jesus Christ returns. He is going to call you out of the grave, resurrect your mortal body, and going to make it a glorious body. I believe that is what Paul is referring to here. And I want to give you just a few points to validate that truth. I want you to just logically think through this with me and see if this doesn't line up with what the text says and what the context says. Very important. Understand what the grammar of the text says and understand what the context points to so that you don't misinterpret the word of God. So what does it say? Well, first of all, I believe the great proof that this is in fact a reference to the, the resurrection of your physical mortal body on the final day is that in this verse there is a double reference to the, resur- to the bodily resurrection of Christ. Do you see it? Look at the verse. Raised the Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Is that talking about a moral resurrection of Jesus' life while he lived on this earth? Or is that talking about a physical resurrection three days after he died on the cross, was put in a sealed tomb, and buried? It's talking about the physical resurrection of his body. There is no question. There's no argument. There's no other interpretation that is given to that. So right here in verse 11, dual reference to the physical resurrection of Christ's body. And Paul is using that as an illustration to prove your physical resurrection. Do you see the connection there? It is really the, 
If you apply the principles of proper interpretation, you can't come to any other conclusion without saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to totally change the meaning of the text. He's talking about Jesus' physical bodily resurrection, but when he refers to us in it twice, he changes his meaning. Even though he doesn't give any indication in the text that he's doing so, I'm just going to decide that he changes the meaning. You can't do that without doing violence to the text. So unless there is explicit evidence that the meaning should be changed, we must keep the same meaning flowing throughout. And the meaning is Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead in body and that one day we are going to be as his followers as well resurrected. Here's the second proof. I'll state it like this. The spirit gives life where he dwells. The spirit gives life where he dwells. You see that here? The Spirit dwelt in Jesus Christ. Do you know that Jesus performed the miracles and the powers that he performed through the work of the Holy Spirit in him? What happened to him at his baptism as he began his ministry? Heavens opened, dove came down, lighted upon him. It was the Spirit of God. And then he went forth in the Spirit of God, in the indwelling Spirit of God to work the wonders of God in this world. And that spirit that dwelt in him is the spirit that gave him life from the dead. And Paul says, and I'm using that illustration to drive a point home to you, the same spirit lives in you. And what the spirit does is that he gives life to that in which he dwells. So here's the question, where does the spirit dwell? Where does the Spirit dwell in you? Let's let the same author answer it. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Where does the Spirit dwell? He dwells in your body. He dwells in your body. And because the spirit of life dwells in your body, he's going to give life to your body just like he gave life to Christ's body. That's the second proof that he's referring to our physical bodily resurrection on the final day. And then here's the third proof. The Greek word here for life, the Greek word used in this phrase, let me point it out to you. Let's look at it here. Middle of the verse, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life. That word right there, that phrase in the Greek, it's a very strong word. Here's the second truth about it. It is a different word that is used in referring to Jesus' resurrection. Now, That might sound like I just contradicted the point I'm making, but stick with me here for a minute. The Greek word used for the spirit giving to the believer life, he will also give life, is a different word than it is referring to the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. But it must be a different word. Must be a different word. Here's what it means. The word is meant to describe the transmission of the actual life of Jesus Christ himself to the believer. Paul is saying that the nature, the very essence, the actual substance of the resurrected life body of Jesus Christ, that is what the Holy Spirit is going to give every believer. So follow that out then to its logical conclusion. If the meaning is that the Spirit gives a moral resurrection in this life, this is the time where He gives us life. Let me just ask you a question. Is, if you're a believer, is your life, is your body like Jesus' resurrected body right now? Mm-mm. 
Mine sure isn't. Oh my, no, it's not. But what that word means in the Greek is that the very essence, the very substance of the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, the glorified body of Jesus Christ, is going to be transmitted to the believer on a day when he's resurrected. That means it cannot be now because I don't have it now. It's coming in a day in the future on the final day to where my life is going to be like the very nature and essence and substance of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. So based upon those three things, to me, it is undeniable, unarguable that what Paul is referring to here is not a moral resurrection in the moment. He's talking about a future bodily resurrection of our mortal bodies on the final day when Jesus returns. So, that answers the first question, the what question. What does the text say? And what the text says grammatically and contextually is this. That if you're a believer that every true believer has the Spirit of God living in them. And because they have the Spirit of God living in them, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that they will have their physical mortal bodies resurrected on the final day from death to life. That's what it says. So understanding that now, we are positioned to go to the second question what the so what and the so what again is this what does the text mean or what did God say about what he said in the what so let's explore that for a minute and let me start by this this is a critical very critical I have this is my my sixth message on the eighth chapter of Romans In the previous five messages, if you were here for all or any of those, you heard this, that Romans chapter 8 has one great idea, one key truth. And the key truth of Romans chapter 8 is stated in verse 1 and then proven for the next 38 verses of the 8th chapter. And the key truth is this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation now, no condemnation tomorrow or next year, no condemnation throughout eternity that the believer in Christ has a full, final, and forever salvation. Never again will they come under condemnation. And then for 38 verses, he proves that. So here's what we can do then to test whether that's true we can go to verse 11 and say, is there proof of that? One great truth in verse 11. So let's reason together now and see what does God say about what he said? Let's see if there is proof. And I'll ask the question this way. If the truth of Romans 8 is the full final and forever salvation of every believer, then here's the question. What guarantees? What is the guarantee of the Christian's bodily resurrection and glorification? This is another way to ask the question. What is the guarantee? And let me give you a few. Here's number one. The indwelling Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Look at the text itself. I want you to see again the force of Paul's argument here. Isn't the very essence of the argument of Paul this? That if you have the Spirit dwelling in you, not some Christians do, some Christians don't, remember? It's really a because of the truth that he had said previous that every believer does have the indwelling spirit, that because that is true, then this is also true, 
that just like that spirit raised Jesus bodily from the grave, that same spirit who did that for Jesus is going to do that for you. Do you see that that's the entire thrust of the argument of Paul here? That if the spirit is in you, it's not a maybe, it's not a most of the time, it's a guarantee that every believer that has the indwelling presence of the spirit in them, they have the guarantee that they are going to come to a moment in history when their body laying in the grave is going to be resurrected from death to life. The same spirit that did it for Jesus is going to do it for you. That's the first guarantee. That's the, really the thrust of his argument here. Unquestionably the thrust of his argument. So that is the first proof that does, in fact, line up with what Romans 8 is all about. Under that same heading, Paul gives explicit evidence elsewhere in his letters that, in fact, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your eternal life. Let me read it for you in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, Paul wrote, talking to Christians, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see how unarguable that is right there? That when you believed, you were given the Spirit as an indwelling presence. And that indwelling presence of the Spirit became a seal. It became a mark. It became a guarantee. The stamp of God on your life that that Spirit is there and here's what that Spirit does. It guarantees that the inheritance you've been promised is going to be given. It's like a check drafted on God's bank account. It's not going to come back NSF. It's going to be fulfilled. The endorsement is going to be honored because it's actually the very endorsement of God himself, his indwelling presence, his indwelling spirit in you that says forever, it'll be life. It'll be life. Okay, let me give you a second point. I won't spend much time on this. I just mention it but it's powerful if you look closely at this verse, even just at this verse, but then if you incorporate verses 9, 10, and 11, you can see it even more clearly. But the entire triune member of the Godhead is at work. It is God the Father, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. That says right there that the spirit of him, of God, that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. That's what that says right there. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And that it says later that through his spirit, he did that. So God the Father is a part of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God the Son is a part of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus said at one point in the Gospels? He said... Everyone who believes in me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise them up at the last day. Jesus said that he was going to do that. And so we look at that and say, now, wait a minute. It, that sounds confusing. God the Father said he's doing it. God the Spirit says he's doing it. God the Son says he's doing it. Well, praise God. All three members of the Godhead are at work guaranteeing that on the last day, they're going to call you out of the grave from death to life. It's as sure as God himself that that is going to happen. That's what Paul is getting at here. It's as sure as the reality that there is a triune God that every believer is going to be called out of the grave. That's how sure it is. That's how guaranteed it is. And here's the third proof. And I love this one. Oh, I love this one. Christ's super abounding grace over Adam's sin. Christ, that's what's hinted at here in this verse, you have to think back a little bit to make the connection. We even talked a little bit about it last week. Go back to Romans 5, 12 to 21. Last half of Romans 5. 
What Paul did in that section is he made a comparison, a contrast between the first man, Adam, and what is called the second man, Christ. And what he did in that contrast is he said, here's the reality. Through Adam, sin entered into the world and corruption came. And that corruption was passed down to every man, woman, and child. That Adam's sin brought the great destruction to the to the human race. But then he began to talk about the work of Jesus Christ and how just like the one man Adam brought the destruction, the one man Jesus Christ won the victory. That just like Adam's one sin was what brought the ruin for mankind, Christ's one act of obedience, his willing death on the cross is what brings victory to all those who trust in him. And the point Paul is making there is that Christ and his victory is greater than Adam and his defeat. That's the point. Christ is superior to Adam. Christ's victory is greater than Adam's defeat. Now just keep that train of thought and I'll make the connection here with verse 11. He comes down to the end of chapter 5 and he gives this great climax statement of the comparison between Adam and Christ. Romans 5, 20 and 21. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where, let me read that again. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's Paul's point. The victory that Christ won is greater than the defeat Adam's sin secured. Let me get more specific than that. What was the ultimate result of Adam's sin? He brought death into the world. Death. Spiritual death and separation from God and the seed of death to mortal bodies that had once been righteous but that were now corrupted. Mortal death that decays and ultimately ends in physical death. So spiritual death, physical death. So that Adam's sin affected us spiritually and it wrecked us physically. You see that? It wrecked us both ways. And The point Paul is making in the comparison is that just like Adam's sin wrecked us both ways, Christ's victory redeems us both ways. Not only spiritually and with our soul, but also physically. It redeems us both ways. So here's a question we could ask then in verse 11. Make the connection now to verse 11. If Adam's defeat, if his sin that brought the consequences of that destruction had such an incredible impact over our physical bodies that were originally created in righteousness, created to be immortal, if Adam's sin had that effect over our physical bodies, then listen, If Jesus Christ doesn't do something to turn that around, his victory is not complete. Do you understand that logic? You see, if Jesus Christ's salvation only affects us in our spirit and in our soul, but not in the third aspect of our creation, our body, if it's only 66% of redemption with one-third left off, then Jesus Christ didn't ultimately win the victory. He won most of the victory, but he didn't quite go all the way. And the point Paul is making here between the comparison is that Jesus and his victory is far superior to Adam and his defeat and the corruption that his sin brought. So that that means that the redemption, the salvation Christ offers must include 
a victory for you physically as well as soul and spirit. And that is, in fact, what Paul is proclaiming in verse 11. That the spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus, that give life to his physical body one day on the final day is going to do the same for you. He is going to turn around the corruption that Adam brought into this world because of sin. And that body of yours that is weak and frail and prone to sin and has the seed of death in it and is decaying and will eventually die. That body right there is going to have the final aspect of redemption applied to it and the superabounding grace of Jesus Christ that abounds where sin increases. In other words, sin goes this high and grace goes infinitely higher. That's going to also happen in your physical body where sin impacted it this much. Grace is going to impact it infinitely because you're going to be raised from the dead as a follower of Christ and your physical body is no longer going to carry around the corruption that came from Adam's sin. All of the victory is going to be won. It hasn't been won yet, but it's going to be won on the final day. That's the promise that Paul is making here. So that Christ's grace superabounds over Adam's sin, proving as the third point that, yes, in fact, you will be raised from the dead. As a follower of Christ, your mortal body will be raised, resurrected on the last day. Here's another, one other question under this second point, so what? You see, what we're doing again now is we understand the what. What does the text say? Physical resurrection of our mortal body. What does the text mean? It means this. That your physical resurrection of your mortal body is guaranteed. Guaranteed based upon the indwelling spirit. Same spirit who raised Jesus is going to raise you. Based upon the fact that the triune God is at work to accomplish that. And nothing is going to stop God from doing that. And then thirdly, because Jesus Christ's grace superabounds over sin and its effects. So that it's a guarantee that your physical body is going to be resurrected. Now, the second question under that heading of the so what is this? What will the resurrection of our physical bodies be like? What will they be like? What does that mean? Here's the first thing. And it's going to sound redundant, but please follow along because this is an incredible truth. It will be our bodies that will be resurrected. It'll be our bodies. It's going to be your body. And your body, if you're a believer, meaning it's not going to be that no part of who you are now is a part of who you're going to be. No, that's not what it says. It says that your body is going to be resurrected. Here's what I mean by that. I'm not saying that flesh and blood is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It can't. Scripture directly says that. Flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But here is the truth that is included here. That your body, in some way, the continuity between who you are now as a follower of Christ and who you are going to be is not going to be broken. It's not going to be broken. Now, think through this a minute because physically finite minds have a difficulty with this. But let me just make some bold statements. Bodies that have rotted and turned to dust in the grave, they're going to be raised. Bodies that have passed through 
the fire of incineration, cremation, are going to be raised. Bodies that have sunk to the depths of the ocean and there become fish food, those bodies are going to be raised. Bodies that have been devoured by beasts, blown up and vaporized in atomic blasts, they are going to be raised. And we say, well, wait a minute. How in the world, where are they? How does that happen? Finite minds trying to understand something that transcends it. But let's look at the truth of God's word. What does he say? Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do you see the reasoning that Paul gave there? He said, look, my mind is not big enough to fully understand this, but here's what I know. The same God that is able to subject everything to himself is able to resurrect your physical mortal body in whatever state it is in. Whatever state. Because he's the God that is the God over all the molecular level of the universe. He's the God that said, let there be, and there was. He's the God that understands everything all the way down to the most intricate level. And so whatever form your body is in on the final day, if you're a believer, he's going to grab that wherever it is, and he's going to resurrect that body. He can do that because he's the creator. He's the God with absolute power, unlimited power, all power and all wisdom and all knowledge who is everywhere present. He can do that and he's going to do that. That's the promise here. He's going to resurrect your physical body. And that leads us to the second truth about what our bodies are going to be like. So first of all, there's this continuity It's not just something totally different. It's totally different, but it's not not completely detached. But here's the second truth. You're going to be recognizable. You're going to be recognizable in your glorified state. Jesus Christ was recognizable after he rose from the dead. Jesus Christ was recognizable to John on the island of Patmos, Revelation opening chapter when he saw him there. The one who Jesus loved, uh, that young disciple who leaned against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, that John at 90-some years old on the island of Patmos was given a vision and Jesus Christ showed up and he recognized him right there. In his glorified state, Moses and Elijah, Mount of Transfiguration, were recognizable. You see, there is continuity between who you are now and who you're going to be. Now, let me just give you a couple of just interesting conversations after the first service here. I had one lady came up and said, in jest, Now, are you talking about all this flab that I have on me now is going to be resurrected? No, that's not what I'm talking about. All of the good, none of the bad. And all of it's going to be transformed into glory. But think about how incredible the truth about your Retaining your identity is in heaven. If you don't retain your identity, what is the purpose of the test and the trial here? If you have no remembrance, no connection with who you were, I mean, 
heaven is based upon how you do it down here. I don't mean you earn it, but did you place your faith in Christ down here? That settles the deal. And then how you lived for Christ here determines some things about your future there so that if there's no continuity between there and here, what's the point? Let me give you some other things that are incredibly meaningful to me. This lady right over here, this beautiful woman on the second row in the black coat, that's my bride. I'm going to know her in heaven. I'm going to recognize. I want to do that. I want to know her. I'm not saying we're going to be married. There's no marriage in heaven. But she, my wife, I'm going to know was my wife here on earth. My kids that are in heaven, I'm going to know they were my kids here on earth. That's important to me. Very important to me. My father and my mother, I want to see them and recognize them in glory. And I'm going to do that because there's going to be continuity between who they were and who they will be. My older brother, who for years was an alcoholic on the edge of death, that totally radically transformed in a moment by Jesus Christ, who is now my double brother. I'm going to recognize him in heaven. If I didn't, heaven would not be all that it could be. I had a lady come up to me after the first service and said, does that mean that the two children that I lost in the womb, I'm going to recognize. Absolutely, it means that. Absolutely, you're going to be introduced and you're going to recognize that that child was the child conceived in your womb. I take that even further. Even if in a moment of a wrong decision, you aborted a child and are broken over that now, you're going to be reunited with that child in heaven. That child is going to be there. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to be there. There's going to be a continuity. There's going to be a recognition of that. Is that great truth? Oh man, that is great truth. That's the victory that Jesus Christ wins. And then finally, our bodies are going to be like, it's not only going to be our actual body that's resurrected and transformed into glory, and not only are we going to be recognizable, but our bodies are going to be like Jesus Christ's resurrected body. That's the truth stated right here. To be like his glorious body. To be like his glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, there's Adam. Connection again, Romans 5. We shall also bear the image of the man from heaven, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us several truths about the resurrected body. I'm going to throw them at you really quick. Our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. I'm not going to be in this process of decay. They're imperishable. Number two, they're going to be bodies of glory and power. Bodies of glory and power. Number three, spiritual bodies. Meaning, they're going to be suited for a spiritual habitation in heaven. Number four, they're going to be bodies from heaven. There's going to be a heavenly component to them. And then number five, they're going to be immortal. They're going to be bodies that grow in vitality of life in increasing measure for out, throughout all eternity. You see, 
what that means. That means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it secures through the working and power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in truly is super abounding. So that the atonement of Christ not only saves our spirit and our soul, redeeming them, but one day it's going to also fulfill the final aspect of our redemption, our physical bodies, so that all of the effects of Adam's sin are going to be defeated once and for all time. And even greater, he's not just going to take us back to what we were before the fall, to what Adam was in the garden. It's going to go infinitely beyond that. We're actually going to become like Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, like his body. Our body is going to be like his body. That's the truth. That's the super abounding work of the grace of God. Now, don't hear me to say that we're going to be gods. I am not saying that at all. But it is undeniable that our body is going to be like Jesus Christ's glorious body. That's what the Spirit is going to do. So that's the so what. That's what the text means. Now, finally, the now what. What must I do? based upon what the text says and what the text means. What must I do based upon what God has said and what God means by what he said? I'm just going to give you one verse and a brief statement about it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. This is the end of that great resurrection chapter that we just pulled several truths out of. Here's how Paul brings that to a climax in the 58th verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do you see what he's saying there? The only adequate response to the superabounding grace of God that redeems you spirit and soul and that will eventually redeem you bodily with a glorious, eternal, forever, unchangeable existence, the only proper response is that you right here in this life be steadfast. Number one. That means don't be like a wave of the sea to and fro. Live for Jesus, not live for Jesus, live for Jesus. No, be steadfast. Be unmovable. When the storms of life blow against your house, be unmovable. When the enemy attacks you and tries to push you around, be unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Think about it. Grace superabounds over sin. So based upon the superabounding work of Jesus Christ and the Spirit that He gives to you, He wants you then to superabound. He wants your work for Him to abound. Is that a text for preachers? Yes. And it's also a text for every follower of Christ. He wants you to always abound, not just in how much you can fill your life with. He wants you to always abound in the work of the Lord. Always abound in the work of the Lord. And why? Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Meaning this, you don't earn your way to heaven. No way. You do not earn your way to heaven. But once you're saved and your place is guaranteed, then what you do here on this life has impact over what happens in heaven, has impact over your rewards in heaven. Jesus said that over and over and over again. So you can take this little period of time that's like the twinkling of an eye and you can live it 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, and you are going to reap the rewards of that for all eternity, rewards that will never diminish, will never fade, will never decrease. You'll enjoy them in profuse fashion throughout all eternity. So the only proper response is that kind of a life based upon the threefold redemption that Jesus Christ superabounds in for you, soul, spirit, and body. It's your only proper response. That's my only proper response. What we're going to do to end this service now, based upon that incredible, remember I said at the early part of this message, that everything is tied up in the atonement. That ultimately, all of this truth is built upon the work of Jesus Christ in his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So what we're going to do to end this message is we are going to receive communion. Ushers, would you please come? As you're doing that, let me just make a brief statement here. You see, what communion is about the Lord's Supper, it has two elements to it. Bread that is broken and juice. The bread represents the broken body of the Lord Jesus. And the juice represents the blood of Jesus that was spilled to cover sin, to pay the penalty for sin. Jesus Christ had his body broken and his blood spilled. Willingly he did that. In fact, it was the work of the Father who did that to him. And that was done to cover sin, to remove sin and what separates us from God so that he then could offer a superabounding grace that redeems us soul, spirit, and eventually body. So what communion is, is a remembrance. Jesus told us to do this. As you take the bread and drink the juice, you need to remember what purchased your salvation. So it's for everyone that has accepted Christ as their Savior. Only for those who have accepted Christ as their Savior, put their faith in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you've never done that, and as you've heard the truth of Jesus Christ preach and you say I want that I believe Jesus is the very son of God who died for me you can put your faith in Christ right now and for the first time receive the Lord's Supper associating yourself with Christ his broken body and his spilled blood that paid for your redemption so let's pray and then the ushers are going to pass the elements you can receive those and consume those as you remember the atoning work of Christ. Father, we just commit this to you. Open up our minds to understand more and more the incredible work of the atonement. As we sang right before I preached, lead us to the cross. Do that now. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.